a man had two sons. And Cain hated his brother Abel and murdered him. And beneath that tragic story, there is a deeper story. There's a deeper question because, you see, Cain murdered Abel because Cain feared that his brother was acceptable to God and he was not. And so the question, who's in, who's not in, who's in, who's out, is an ancient question, and it is a question that keeps being asked and a story that keeps being played out over and over again. And so we have now the battle over the border. Literally, who's in, who's out? Who should be admitted, who should not be admitted? And the wall is more than a physical barrier, it is a psychological barrier. It is an emotional barrier. It is something that would suggest to us somehow that we're keeping out those whom we do not want. But that's not limit, it's not limited to politics or national issues. It is always there in families. It's in there in the church. And so the church has wrestled with the question, who's in, who's out? Go back and read the 15th chapter of Acts. Read the book of Galatians. The question there was, who's in, who's not in? Do those who come into the church, must they come by way of the Hebrew rituals? Must they do the things that Jews must do in order to be a part of the church? Who's in, who's not in? The church has struggled with the question of the separation of clergy and laity. Are clergy given special privileges that laity do not have? And we've wrestled with that, and the church has answered in various ways. In America, the church, of course, went through the great crisis of who's in, who's not in, in terms of people of color. And so Richard Allen, a black man who was there at the very beginning of the Methodist Church in America, was with a friend praying in the main part of the sanctuary. And someone came and told him and told his friend, you cannot pray here. You must go up there in the balcony. For this is reserved for white people. And the African, the African Methodist Episcopal Church was born out of that discourtesy, that unwelcome. We in the church have struggled over the role of women. Should women be allowed to preach? Should they be able to assume a pastoral role? We've struggled with the question of divorce. Should divorced persons be allowed to preach? to assume leadership and responsibility. And of course, nowadays, we struggle with the question of gay people, homosexuals and lesbians. Should they be allowed full privileges of access into the church? We have always struggled with that question. Who is in? Who is not in? 
It's a story that is as old as humanity. And the truth be known, the struggle is not just in the church, it's within the Scripture. The Scripture does not give one answer to this question. There are those places in the Old Testament, for example, where the children of Israel are told that they are to welcome the alien, they are to welcome the stranger, and they are to remember that they were once slaves, that they were once strangers, they were once aliens. And they are to remember how that felt to be on the outside. And so they are to make sure that the stranger, that the alien, that the non-Hebrew feels welcome. Remembering what it's like to be on the outside. There are those places in the Old Testament that, that teach that. But then there are also those places where they are commanded to, to, to slaughter the outsiders, to slaughter the Gentiles. And they are strictly forbidden to have anything to do with anyone who's not like them. And so the Scripture really doesn't speak with one voice on this matter. I remember one September day, I was leading a disciple Bible study group, and we had assigned readings, and that day the reading was the story of how Hagar was dismissed and her son with her, this child of Abraham. And his mother told, you cannot stay here, for the promise is given to Isaac, and Isaac alone, and you are not a part of this. You are not on the inside, you're on the outside. And I remember that September morning thinking about all the grief that has come from that passage. All of the hostility through the years that has been generated by that kind of separation, that kind of inhospitality. And I remember saying, God, why is it this way? I don't think this is good. And I remembered hostility between Arabs and Israelis, between Jews and Christians and Muslims. And I thought, I wish this had never been written in the Scripture. This is a hard thing. And about that time, the phone rang, and someone said, turn on your television set, and I did. And it was, the date was September 11th, and the world was going up in flames over these very kinds of differences. So the story is an old one. It is a controversy that gives rise to this parable, this most powerful of all the parables. Jesus gives this parable in response to the grumbling of the religious leaders. Jesus is associating with the wrong people. He's associating with tax collectors and sinners. And the, the, this category of sinners, that doesn't mean uh, someone who struggles with sin, someone who sometimes fails as a sinner. These are the people who have just more or less decided, well, sin's a good way to live. I'll just give up on this uh, religion and, and, and holiness and righteousness, and, and I will just go my own way, do my own thing, and so much for God, so much for being a Hebrew, so much for trying to be a righteous person. I just don't care. I'm just a sinner. 
And then the tax collectors were a special category of sinners, for they were those who took it to the extreme, and they hired themselves out to the Roman government to collect taxes, and they collected those taxes, and they made their profit by overcharging, and they were working for the enemy. They were the most corrupt. They had traded their identity, their belonging, their sense of who they are. They, they have traded that in this deal they made with the Romans. And so the religious leaders react. They react because not only is Jesus' association with the sinners uncomfortable, it is dangerous. Who knows what these tax collectors might do? They have information. They have the ear of the Romans. They are a threat to us. And there he is cavorting with them. And these scribes and Pharisees, they are the defenders of the moral integrity of their society. They are trying to hold things together against great adversity. And here is Jesus associating with these who are undermining the very moral fabric of their society, at least in the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees. It is the nature of religious people to be worried about such things, and most of us fall into that category. Because you see, this question of who's in and who's not in has a transcendent dimension. My sense of being in depends upon the preservation of the system that assures me that I am in. And if that system is threatened, then my sense, my certainty, my assurance of being on the inside is threatened with it. And we all have this capacity to be as the scribes and the Pharisees are. I remember a number of years ago, I was more of a firebrand of a preacher back in those days, and I sometimes got myself in trouble with my sermons. And, and this got, I really got in trouble one, one year with some colleagues. The preacher across the street, there was a church, our church was here, and there was a church of another denomination just across the street. And this preacher got wind of some of the things I was saying, and he wrote a letter to the editor of the paper. And he said, the folks in that church across the street, they need to leave because that preacher is apostate. He's a heretic. They don't need to be listening to him. He's going to lead them off into a bad place. And, of course, he was hoping they would cross the street and come to his church. And so the very next week, there was another, another preacher who wrote another letter to the editor, and this fellow was an unemployed preacher. And he said, the people don't need to leave the church. They just need to get rid of the preacher. And he, of course, was hoping that he might be my replacement. I'm pleased to tell you that I made it through that. I still got those letters to the editor somewhere in a file. But lest you think that I'm a victim, I've also been guilty of that sort of thing. A number of years ago, way back when I first went in the ministry, and this was in the days before all of these independent churches became so prevalent. Nowadays, we have independent churches just popping up everywhere. 
all of these storefront churches and all of these things. That it's, it's, it's remarkable. Churches that pipe in the preacher as a hologram and all, all that kind of stuff. Well, there was no such thing in those days, and we were shocked that this group had come to town, and they were an independent group. And so a colleague and I went to visit them, and we basically interrogated them and, and in effect, said, what do you think you're doing? This is our town. These are our people. What do you mean encroaching upon our territory? You're not of us, and therefore we don't welcome you. And I remember when we left, one of us said to the other, I feel like we were the Sanhedrin, the scribes and the Pharisees. So you see, it's just a common thing for us to think in those ways. And this gives rise to the story. A man had two sons, and these sons are quite different. The younger son demands his inheritance ahead of time, a most remarkable thing most disrespectful. His father complies. He goes to the far country, and he goes to a place where no one will know him, where his identity will not be an encumbrance. No one will know that he is the father's son. He will be able to establish his own identity as he chooses. And there he goes, and he wastes his inheritance. He squanders everything he has, and he begins to suffer the harshness of this far country. His father has given him everything, and in this place, no one gives him anything, and he begins to suffer. He hires himself out in the most degrading way, feeding the pigs and was so hungry he would have eaten the pig slop. He comes to his senses only partially comes to himself, but not all the way. He wakes up and realizes, I'm starving to death, and my father's hired hands have enough to eat. I think I'll go home and hire myself out to my father. He repents, but not all the way. It's just a strategy to get what he needs. And then there's the older son. The older son stays home. He does everything requested of him, everything required of him, he loses himself, however, in resentment. Resentment over the father's treatment of the brother. Loses himself over the brother's dissolute living. And he's angry and he won't come in. He won't join the party. So what does the father do? The father sees the younger son off in a distance he goes out to the son. He doesn't wait for the son to come to him. He goes to the son. He embraces him. He kisses him. He restores him to sonship. He will not let the son complete his confession. He interrupts. The son begins to say, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And he's getting ready to ask for a job. And the father interrupts and says, oh, welcome home, son. And he welcomes him, embraces him, restores him to the family, and has a party in his honor. Then there's the older son, the father, hearing that he will not come in, goes out to him. He finds him and he pleads with him. The father assures him of his place in the family. He says to him, everything I have is yours. You are always with me. Nothing can come between us. You will always be my son. 
a member of the family, come and join me and join the rest of your family in welcoming your brother. We know the prodigal needs to be saved, don't we? He's clearly in trouble. He squandered his identity. He squandered the blessings of God. He's gotten himself in a hard place, and we rejoice when he comes home, and we rejoice in the Father's welcome. But what about the older son? Does he not also need to be saved? See, sisters and brothers, I don't think we're fully saved until we understand and accept that the Father's welcome extends to all. It extends to all. Whatever else religion might teach, whatever else the Scripture might say about who's in and who's out, this story, this story that comes from the lips of our Lord tells us makes clear to us that all who accept the Lord's acceptance of them are welcome. All who allow themselves to be embraced by the Father's welcome, all of them are in, and no one is left out. No wall can be built, no policy can be passed, no doctrine can be devised to negate this deep and wonderful truth of the Father's welcome. Extravagant grace, extravagant love. Someone said this morning after the early service, some days I'm the prodigal, other days I'm the older son. And we recognize both, don't we? The tragedy of the younger son is that he doesn't recognize what he has. He takes for granted the father's love and throws away valuable resources. And we've all done that. We do it. And yet the Lord welcomes us back. The tragedy of the older son is that he thinks he cannot be who he is if the younger son is allowed to be who he is. That he cannot be in if the younger son is in. And that's just not true. Because the father's arms are broad and wide and welcoming of all. May we go on to sanctification. May we go on to perfect love as we understand and accept the Father's welcome. We are thankful for that grace. And so we, so we stand and sing number 102, now thank we all our God. And you are invited into Christian discipleship as we sing. <laughs>